Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 768 with Chris DeSantis. Chris has some great perspective on how to navigate generational differences, resolving conflict effectively. So you'll learn one, how to turn generational friction into an opportunity, two, how to give feedback that works for every generation, and three, how to motivate people from each generation. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we reference, please pay a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP768 and check out some of our goodies at Awesome At Your Job. Now, here's Chris's story. Chris DeSantis is a speaker, author, consultant, and podcaster specializing in management and organizational development issues and interventions. Recently, he's been focused in on generational effort, and his latest book is called Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Big thanks to Chris for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Chris. Chris, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for having me. Well, first, I think we need to understand you and your history with improv classes. What's the story here? Yes, yes, yes. I moved to Chicago probably, I, mean, I live in Chicago if anybody's interested, and I moved into an area called Old Town about 30-some oh, years ago. And I had some friends in the city, and uh, Old Town is the heartland of Second City. And so I was told, uh, actually, a good way to make friends uh, was to take improv classes. And so the other reason was I'm, I'm a little bit of a, I have a bit of a stage fright issue. And so I was told this might help me with that and ended up taking uh, improv classes from Paul Sills. And if anybody's listening, Paul Sills is the son of Viola Spolin. And if anybody knows who that is, Viola Spolin wrote Improv in the Theater, and that's sort of the basis for Second City. So I, I, I had access to one of the gurus of the time, although I never really quite leveraged it to the degree he did, but I ended up teaching a while at, at a local theater here too. So it was a very fun experience. I recommend it to anyone who is introverted. That is funny. I, I did a Second City five-day intensive improv class once, and it was I was a lot of fun. And I remember saying, I remember telling my friends, oh, it was nice. I feel like it, it loosened me up. And the, my friend said, did you need to be loosened? <laughs> and, uh, well, compared to my- Did you do a show? Did you do a show afterwards? You know, not, you know, well, not like with a big old audience, but it was just, it was just sort of, I think the dozen of us doing our thing. The games. Yeah. I love the games. Really fun. So that's fun. Well, well now I want to hear a bit about your book, Why I Find You Irritating, 
navigating generational friction at work. What's the big idea here? Well, the whole point of this book is, is really to understand the differences between us. And uh, so in that sense, and in fact, the title's uh, curious only because I had submitted 37 titles to the publisher. Oh, wow. I love it. That's what we do. And this is the one they like. We get tons of title options and then choose the best one every time. Thank you. And so they like this because I think it really uh, makes the point that we are in some way irritated with others across one difference that we recognize. This is one of those differences that we readily recognize, and we ascribe it to them as if they're at fault, and we, of course, are not, meaning that we're the objective view of reality. And so when my book goes on to talk about where this comes from and the repercussions of this, and then what to do about it in the workplace. Okay, excellent. Well, so so we're talking about generational friction. So, and these are this is always a delicate matter because I, I think Chris, there's probably no way around it. We're going to be making some generalizations here. Is that fair to say? That's part of what I talk about in the book. But humans do that. Humans generalize. <laughs> so, I guess first of all, how do we define the generations? And are we coming at it from a US-centric base here, or is it kind of global in applicability? Now, you're making some very good points, because uh, when I speak to this topic, I have to go through a whole series of caveats to your point, the first one being you generalize, and or I generalize. And I'm not describing humanity. I'm describing some actions of a normative group in the middle class in the United States of America who conform to certain experiences at certain times that sort of shape a perception. So in that sense, uh, it is a smaller subset. It is not global, even though it's interesting. I've, I've spoken around the world on this, oddly enough. I'm always in, amazed that I'm invited anywhere, but I had talked about it. And so when you talk about it globally, you have to say some of these things, but still, even having done that, they still see differences that correspond to the American experience, which I think is interesting. Okay, Chris, so, so we're going to do some generalizing, uh, but first maybe define some terms, generations, how do we name them these days, and what is roughly the median age of a person representing each generation, say, in summer 2022, as we record this? Yeah, so if we go with uh, uh, boomers, well, you know why that came from, baby boom, so that that's just, everyone knows that one. There was a great number of us born in that window of time after the war. And that would be that 65 or 67-year-old uh, today in the medium group. And we're retiring out. About half of us are retired. Gen X got its name from the book. From the book. There was simply just one book written about them. That, they fly below the radar quite a bit. And, of course, their medium age, right there, according to what we're playing here, is around 45 to 47. So then the next crowd, millennials, had a different name. They were originally in the uh, literature for a while there. They were Gen Y. And because, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, that never caught on. And, and I think that they responded much better to, or it was foisted upon them, the idea of a millennial simply because of the coming, the turning of the century, the millennium. And now we have Gen Z, which were called Zoomers or the Zoom Gener, but I think that fizzled as well by virtue of the fact of Zoom. And so now they've gotten the Gen Z moniker, again, because they were going in sequence, and the next generation, interestingly, the, these new kids, uh, they're calling Gen Alpha because they're starting it again. But I don't think they'll have a name until they define who they are, and then we'll, we'll lay a label on them. Okay. And so Gen Z would be about 18-ish to 22, right. like your, your fresh recruits. Exactly right. They are in the workplace right now. They're, they've just entered. All right. So there we go. Four generations. 
And so you say, well, I guess we'll go into some particulars in terms of, of frictions, but maybe just to cue us up with some intrigue, is there a particularly surprising and fascinating discovery you've made as you dug into all this stuff associated with generational friction? Well, what I came to, not necessarily a conclusion, but one of the things I did notice that I thought was really a shaping aspect of this, it's not just the flashbulb memories that you have that sort of shape a view, it's also the parenting model. It's how you were parented affects how you interact with others. So I'm a product, as a boomer, I'm a product of sort of a permissive authoritarian parent. So I sort of had to get in line with things. And so if we think about of a Gen Xer, these are those um, latchkey kids and so they had more of a permissive uh, sort of a sensibility about how they uh, interacted because they basically are far more independent on, on their own. Millennials are part of what would be called concerted cultivation in terms of how they were raised. And they are, I will call that an engaged discuss model. They are always engaged in discussions as to what they should or need to do. Gen Z has a variation of that model called co-piloting. The point being here is that those needs or the, the expectation of dialogue is what they bring into the office, yet in the office, they are not necessarily expected to engage in dialogue, but rather to be subject to the authority of the people that are in charge. And the people in charge often view this as a challenge when they say, well, you know, what about this? And you're going, whoa, I just told you what to do. Intrigue. Okay, so there we go. We're getting into the meat of it. An expectation of dialogue. Sometimes the younger generations may expect some more, and the older generations think that's not necessary. I've already told you that. And so that can create some friction on, on both sides. It's exactly right. Because the other thing about the, the young, I think, is interesting to a great degree. And if you're around parents, and I try to observe parents sort of surreptitiously when I'm with people, is that they negotiate more with their children as opposed to demand they do something. So th there's a discussion, of course, that's inherent and then negotiation. And I think the young are excellent negotiators, and they bring that to any conversation they have. And we, in management, or if you're in a management position, you're not open to a negotiation when you're telling somebody to do something. But it comes off very strangely in terms of my expectation. If I'm a young person, my expectation is, why wouldn't I have this dialogue? Conversely, why are we having a dialogue? Right. You know, it's so funny. <laughs> With, uh, I think it's, so I've got a three-year-old and a four-year-old right now. And you have a, you have a, uh, young children, yes? And so I, I really go, I, I, don't, I guess I go both ways in, in terms of like, I don't like to yell. No, and you won't. Because they, they get sensitive and, and, and really sad really fast. I was like, oh, I was, I, I, and I was like, I, I was just trying to like make myself heard because you seem to be sort of in your own world over there. Now I feel like I've overdone it because you know, they get dull sniffly. So yeah, but at the time, there's no need for us to be discussing. You, you, do, you do what I say. And other time, but at the same time, you know, I want them to be kind of like, you know, creative and, and, and free and expressive. So it, it's funny, here I am, I guess a millennial, in this uh, schema, and I am in the midst of it right there in terms of, do I say, get in the car right now, Johnny, uh, versus like, well, hey, bud, you know, it's uh, it's getting to be about that time, you know. <laughs> you will bias towards suggestion than demand. And, and so, and I'll tell you another thing that you probably do quite a bit, Pete, that you may not notice that you do, is you explain why you do what you do. You explain why you're doing this. You don't assume that they're going to understand that you're, you're, this is a command, but rather, this is why I have to say this to you to do this. And that's, that's part and parcel to the expectation that they have in the workplace, too. This, this whole idea of, um, what's his name, Cynic's book, Start With Why? Yeah. 
that's really what they're asking to a great degree is why. Mm -hmm. Okay. You did this, Pete. (laughs) All right. So that's one point of friction is expectation of dialogue. How about another one? Again, a lot of this just depends on with whom we are talking about. For instance, this notion of loyalty, which is very interesting. The accusation that we, a boomer, is far more loyal in our disposition than those who follow. That, of course, I outline in the book is really about the movement from the company man experience to a transactional workplace. And the company man experience was really one of the assumption that you will work here for the duration. And as a consequence, I will reward you, deferred reward, and and that will be rewarded as a pension to some degree. So the, the inference is you have this job for life if you do what I want in the way I need it. Now, what we have done is we've moved transactionally. And now it's a negotiation in the minute. For instance, one of the things that most annoys uh, boomers or some boomers when they interview, the young will ask, well, what are the benefits? What's the vacation time here? So what do I get for this? And in my day, that would have been seen as what? Why? I'm offering you a job and you're, you're, you deign to, to ask me all of these things about the, the benefits? You're getting a job. Uh, but they're saying, this is a transaction. I'm going to be doing something for you. I expect something in return. So it becomes more marketplace driven. It's it's funny because, you know, as you, <laughs> in some ways I, I resist being generalized. No, no, I understand. And yet I 100% am down with the transactional <laughs> vibe. It's just like, no, the loyalty structures and pensions do not exist. And it is a competitive marketplace. And it's just economic fact that I have many opportunities available to me. And, and you have many opportunities of people you can hire. And so we're going to see if we have something that works for both of us in terms of this is a role that um, I, I think is, is swell and, and meaningful and a compensation package that works. And, and you think I've got the skills and you know knowledge, skills, abilities to deliver the value that you need delivered. And either one of us will walk. And so it's sort of like, I don't think you owe me anything. And you don't think, I mean, you don't seem to, I mean, you being the employer here in this, this dialogue, it's like, I, I think, I don't know. I think it's just a reality. We know that an employer will cut us loose at any moment that they feel that it would be more profitable for them to do so. And thusly, I have, I have no, I have, I've been self-employed for a long time. So, but I guess that's sort of, well, by the way, that's an interesting, I can talk to that as well in a moment, but you're, you've said that the key here is that is the new reality. It wasn't the old reality. Right. Exactly right. So the new reality has shifted in terms of what you expect in this transaction. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I guess my, so my thought is, I don't know, when people talk about what's, what's right or wrong. Or sometimes they say, oh, you know what? It's not, nothing's right or wrong. It's just different expectations and generations and how we are brought up. And, and I'm thinking, well, no, it's, it, it, would be, it would be foolish. It would be unwise and to operate in a false reality. You know, it's like the rea- the loyalty doesn't exist to you. So like, don't li- make decisions as though it does, or you, you may get the rug pulled out from under you. And I guess I'm a little paranoid about this, Chris. I don't know. That's why I went into strategy consulting. I was like, develop an amazing skill set so that you can do anything. And, and then how to be awesome at your job. It's like, okay, all the listeners develop a, an incredible universal skill set so that you're fine. No matter what the robots do, no matter what your jerk boss does, you are bulletproof because you're like Liam Neeson with, yes. <laughs> with the particular set of skills, you know, that make you extremely valuable in, in, in any work environment. You got me on my hot soapbox, Chris. <laughs> well, this is the point. You're, one of the points you're making, 
The new reality, to your point, Pete, it supports this idea of employability. Look, I have to be employable, the key. And, and in defense of the, the notion of loyalty in the young, they are more likely to be loyal to you if you treat me in a way that recognizes how I make the contributions I make and what I do on your behalf, and they're less loyal to the organization, which is an abstraction. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So there's expectations of dialogue, loyalty. Maybe give us one more thing where people differ significantly. Another, oh, well, I think actually as a consequence of the pandemic, one obvious thing that where we are differing or we are furthering apart is where senior management believes everyone should come back and everyone else believes, I think I like it at home. <laughs> and so we have a huge rift. If you, it's almost the opposites of each other. When you have senior management at 70 some percent say, we want them all back. And the people, basically young employees in particular, who have now experienced this freedom, want to stay free relative to that. Mm-hmm. Certainly. You also have said something interesting, Pete, because it has been bubbling up and each generation is doing a little bit more of this, is that each one is more entrepreneurial than the generation that preceded it. You are creating in your own children the desire to have an independent life. And part of the messaging, you will never say that out loud. You, you, will not have to, you don't have to say that. You behave in a way that says you can create your own destiny. And we are really, we are really pushing the envelope on individualism and the creation of these independent people. I think we'll eventually all be uh, freelancers. Okay. Well, so here we are. We got some points of friction that uh, show up uh, across generations. What do we do? What's the best way to navigate them and, and work peacefully and effectively uh, across generations then? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting. Part of it has to do is uh, be very clear on your expectations. I think that's one of the things we don't do. You see, I'm used to a world of ambiguity. I was raised with uh, guessing right. And if you guess right, you move forward. Nobody actually told me the whys and the whats of things, but rather I'll know it when I see it, which was a common refrain in management at one point in time. And so the young, to a great degree, want to know really what the rules are to achieve. How do I navigate this environment? I kind of use the analogy of a of, of video games. You know, they want to know how to get to the next level. How do you get to the next level? How do you do this? How do you play the game? So I think it's very important to share the expectations of how you operate with the people that you are, who are making you successful. So if I'm a manager, I want to, I should be telling you, this is how I manage. This is what I would expect from you. What do you need from me to achieve here? How do we stay in touch? If I may give you a point of contention that's very trivial, but it's one that comes up is that how do we stay in touch? I I have a a person I do, I work with who I've used to make videos and he will only contact me through a text. He will never pick up his phone. And I like, I like it when people talk to me. I, in fact, I like it when they sort of see me. But in this case, his mode of connection is a text. It's not that he's not willing to talk to me. It's just how he's more comfortable connecting with me. So I think part of this is we have to get align who we are to each other and how do we stay connected. Let's say we've got a, a younger person, say a millennial, who is the manager of a boomer. Yes. So that happens. And any pro tips on when it's sort of moving in a direction, which might be different than what we're imagining? One of the challenges with that is it's not just the millennial boomer different, it's a stage of life difference. Meaning that, look, I have 35 years of experience under my belt, let's say, you young whippersnapper uh, have only been doing this for three years and you're managing me. 
I think there's an ego that steps in here that, that says, oh my gosh, is this affecting my ego through the lens of the boomer? I think it's prudent for the millennial to draw from the, the more experienced person's experiences as much as they can to say, here's what I'd like to do. What do you think on how to do that? It doesn't mean that they're foregoing the decision that they own, but rather they're drawing from the other person some level of commitment by allowing them to tell them what they do know about this area that could be useful, and then I will fold that in. You see, it's almost being um, some kind of combination between deferential and respectful. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Bring it on. Some more, Chris. Any more tips and tricks, do's and don'ts in this intergenerational world? Yeah, we're collaborating. Like watch outs and and best practices. I, I, I dig it. Being clear on expectations. What else? Well, uh, this idea of how we connect, our methodology of connection, I think is interesting. One of those is I'm a boomer. So my methodology of connection is I like seeing you. I'd like to meet you. I'd like to, you know, we'll, we'll meet. This is our idea of networking. Let's go meet people. Uh, let's join things. Now we know that from bowling alone that people aren't joining anymore. So in that sense, we're, the, the methodology of connection for a Gen Xer is not so much that I know you as the person, but I know that you are competent in what you do. You see, when you're dealing with somebody in that category who is, a, I will call, um, a little more private in their revealing of who they are, they reveal more slowly over time. They sort of like unfold over time and they will reveal themselves as the competency of the relationship becomes more solidified, meaning that you show me you're good at something, I'll show you who I am. And so as it relates to that, the young are more open again. The millennial is... You've heard this expression, they share too much? Uh-huh, I've heard that. Yeah, well, I don't know if they do share too much. I think what we often hear from them is that, or ex- actually it's, the, it's others commenting about them saying they share too much, when in fact, they're not oversharing, they're just in the habit of sharing who they are with others, and their methodology of connection is to self-reveal. For instance, you talk to your kids on a daily basis, I would imagine, right? That's right, yeah. So if you do, when you talk to your kids on a daily basis, you probably ask them each day, what did you do today? What did you do today? Did they share that? You know, it's 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 hit or miss. <laughs> oh, that's interesting because yeah, normally in my a lot of times because I I overhear again. Remember, I talk about I observe these parents is that uh, they'll they'll tell what they did today, and I think that gets in the habit of how they reveal who they are to others, and so they're not necessarily oversharing. They're they're finding a way to connect with another, and then their expectation is um, implicit reciprocity. I've told you who I am. Tell me a little bit about more of you. So they're they're open to the discourse between us. Yeah. Okay, cool. What else in terms of do's and don'ts here? Okay. <laughs> I was thinking of, of which I go uphill or downhill with this. It's so interesting. I do think that, again, going back to some of this, how we are different, I think one of the things that's going to be very important going forward is how we decide to mentor. The young want to be mentored in a more deliberate capacity where it used to be more of an organic experience, meaning that I just discover you and I say, oh, you seem to be a little like a young version of me. And if we're going to live in, the, in a world that has embraces greater diversity, we have to be more deliberate in how we mentor people. But my problem with that is, and here's where the friction lies, is when you use a term like, I'm assigning you to be my mentee, Pete, it, it infers intimacy that we don't have. And so in that sense, we have to, we should start more from the back end of here, just to have an advisor to each other that allows us to open up more slowly, because I think intimacy is something that is earned as opposed to assumed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hear you. That checks out. Like, this is your protege. This is your mentor. It's like, oh, really? Yeah. They do tend to, and my experience. And then again, the other problem I have with that is that they tend to assume that 
now that you're my mentor, you are also my sponsor. And again, we don't define these things very well. And a sponsor is different than a mentor. A sponsor, of course, is somebody who's going to look out for you and get you promoted. A mentor is really someone who's going to give you advice on what they've learned in certain areas where you might seem to have some issues that you want to share in terms of solving problems. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And tell me if, if we do find ourselves in maybe a heated exchange, like we got some real, some real tension intergenerationally, mm-hmm. do you have some tips on, on how we might uh, navigate that smoothly or, or cool things down a little bit? Yeah, because I think a heated exchange is typically in the area, in, in my view, because one of the myths about the young is, uh, in general, is that they're very sensitive to feedback. I think that's people will say. I'm not convinced that uh, they are sensitive to feedback. I am convinced that all people are sensitive to feedback. And so in that sense, I think sometimes we give feedback as a conclusion as opposed to the behaviors. And so I, I have no problem with somebody saying, okay, Pete, hey, you're not really doing a great job of being a team player. That's the headline. But you can't stop there. You, you can't just expect the young person to say, okay, I'll be a better team player. What does that mean? So I think what we have to do is we have to be more explanatory. We have to say, what are the behaviors? And then, and then because again, these are children of dialogue, as it were, we should be willing to have a discussion about, well, what does that look like? And what, what are the ways to shape that behavior or change that behavior? And how do I support that effort? And how do I know it happened? So again, we have to move away from just a pure tell model to more of a dialogue model, because that's an expectation. And quite frankly, it has greater stickiness when you're in dialogue with somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and then I'd also like to get your view when it comes to just sort of motivation in terms of we hear listeners say, oh, you know what, my uh, my peers or direct reports or others are just not motivated. You know, they're kind of phoning it in. Do you have any pro tips in terms of are, are there different carrots and or, and or sticks or, or drivers that tend to be more compelling for each of the generations? Well, I think part of the key here is that this is where we're moving beyond the generational differences into more the stage of life. Where are you in your life and what might you want then? And so, uh, for instance, the young are still probably to some degree deciding who I will become. And so what motivates me is what do I want to develop in terms of my skill sets, right? So where are my skills and where do I want to hone those skills? So part of the motivation is, again, this goes back to engaging people, is to find out what they're interested in doing better or more of and trying to find circumstances that you can supply that. That becomes the carrot, as it were. Uh, So I think that works very well. Now, some people want promotions, which I am not convinced everyone wants promotions anymore. I think going to your point, Pete, they want to be employable and they want to develop their skills. The only problem with that is when I make you more employable and develop your skills, people fear that, oh, then I'll lose them to the marketplace. Well, wasn't that uh, Ford who said, well, the only thing worse than not training your people or training your people and they leave is not training your people and they stay. So I think we have an obligation. So I think part of this. Now, the other thing interesting about in my generation is motivating us is to say what's to some degree is what experiences do we want to have? Because I don't know if promotions are part of the package anymore at this stage, but rather also, I think we're in a legacy phase. What can we give back to others? We should create circumstances where we can teach those who follow. Well, thank you. Well, well, tell me, Chris, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? At this point, no, I think I think we've covered this. I, I, I like what you're asking about some of these, the differences between us. And, and I like your point earlier that, look, 
you cannot generalize about a whole group. Uh, you have to say what group are we alluding to and this notion of what are the norms within that group? You know, what, what are the norms we observe? I think part of the trouble with being young is, is that the headlines about millennials are negative. They are the Florida man of generations. So, because anytime you see Florida man in a headline, it's some tragedy that, you know, Florida man found starving to death in his own refrigerator. So you have these tragedies, and then we start to see these millennial headlines, and we start to associate that with them, and that becomes self-fulfilling in our perception of them, which is not an accurate reflection of who they are. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, that resonates in that. I guess I didn't even like being called a millennial. No, it's unfair. Even though I guess, I guess tactically, that's where I'd land. And that's like, I don't, I don't care for that. <laughs> no. Well, because again, how they have labeled yeah. you. This is interesting too, because one of the things about each generation, we're all a disappointment. We're just not a disappointment at the same time. Uh-huh. <laughs> Gen X were slackers. We were hippies, you know? So in that sense, everyone is a disappointment. And then we outgrow. The only problem that millennials have is Gen Z hasn't stepped in to be a disappointment yet. So that, that you can get some space. Okay. Well, got that to look forward to. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now could you share a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? Yeah. One of my favorites is we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. And that's what this is. What, why this is such a perceptual issue. This was uh, Anaya. I think I can't think of how do you pronounce her name. Anais Nin. She wrote the Delta of Venus. Lovely book, by the way. Okay. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? My favorite bit of research is a book by a man named Hofstede, and he wrote uh, Cultures and Organizations. And what he did is he, it was from an IBM study, I think in the, originally in the 70s, and he extrapolated that or expanded that into uh, the different dimensions across national cultures. That was super enlightening because now I see why the French are the French or, you know, Mexico is Mexico and U.S. is U.S. Very enlightening. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I like it when I the, I get free notebooks. You know, those ones you can write in from your client, like that swag, they give you a gift because I use those sort of to take notes. And then I just have a stack of these things. Cool. All right. And a favorite habit? Uh, habit is reading. I'm a reader. You're, you, I would have to believe you are as well to some degree to do so many of these episodes, but I do try to read a book a week. Oh, cool. And how do you manage that volume? Do you listen? Do you read while doing other things like exercise or how do you? Well, I, yeah, I'll do it while exercising. I, actually, I do that while I'm on the, on the bike. But it, typically, though, I dedicate at least uh, two to three hours a day to read something. Oh, cool. I mean, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. All right. You have little kids. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and is, is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you often? Yeah. When I talk about this, because you said it right at the beginning, is look, when you generalize, the the only real truth in what I say and and in my book is that what is true about, you said it yourself, the things that is true about you personally is what's true. Everything else I say is really fodder for the the conversation or the discussion or the discovery you can make in an exchange with another. Mm -hmm. And if folks wanted to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? They can get in touch with me at my website at cpdesantis.com. Mm-hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I I think I would say this, that look, next time you see somebody acting strangely in a way that you will judge them, imagine for a moment that this person is as rational as you are and what might they be doing that is rational to them. And so I would just simply say, give people the benefit of the doubt. All right. 
Chris, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much fun and peace as you're navigating generational frictions. Thank you, Pete. And good luck with the kids there. I love Chris's take on clear, clear, clear with the expectations and not just assuming, of course, it's this way. This is how I think. This is how everybody thinks. That serves you well with both generational issues and just about everything. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP768. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.